You're listening to a podcast from West Wind Church. For more information, visit our website at westwindchurch.org. Great to see you. We had a wonderful Thanksgiving. We were up in Minnesota. Our family, extended family, got together. It was the first time uh, with Ryan, our son-in-law's family. We we just enjoyed a full day together. It was spectacular. Hopefully your Thanksgiving uh, was enjoyable as well. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Acts chapter 13. Uh, We're studying through the book of Acts, 28 chapters. It's a lot of material, but boy, it's been a fun journey. Uh, Acts 13 is about being the church, and that is the name of our series. If there's ever a church in the New Testament that stands out, it's the church at Antioch, and that's a church we're going to be highlighting this morning. So if you have your Bibles, Acts 13, we're going to be looking at the first 12 verses. But a few years ago, I had the opportunity with some pastors, just a handful of guys, to travel to South Korea. And uh, the focus really was on a study seminar to learn from the church in Korea about prayer. Because the church, the people of God in Korea pray. It's remarkable what God has done. I was really astounded, though, to learn that a little bit more than 100 years ago, Christianity in Korea almost was non-existent. And so it begs the question, what happened? How did Christianity move from non-existent to about 40% of the country claiming Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord? There's over 50,000 churches in South Korea alone. It's quite remarkable. Well, there's a lot of reasons for that. World War II, Japanese occupation ending, prayer. But I think ultimately there is the biblical reason. And it goes back to Matthew 16. Jesus is with his disciples. He asks them, hey, who do people say that I am? And they gave some responses. Then he says to Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter declares, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the Savior. And then Jesus says, upon this rock of faith, I'm going to build my church. And hell won't prevail against it. That's one of the great promises in Scripture that Jesus said he will build his church. 2,000 years ago, he made that promise, and the church in South Korea is exploding in a reality to that. This morning, we're going to look at another church, the church at Antioch. And so, if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts 13, but before we go there, I want to give you an idea of how the church at Antioch got launched, because it's a remarkable thing. And so on your screen, Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 21, here's what we read. Those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen made their way as far as, and notice these places, Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking, to, speaking the message to no one except Jews. So there's a transition going on here. The next word is huge. But... There were some of them, Cypriot and Cyrenian men, who came to Antioch and began speaking to who? The Hellenists, proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them. And look what happened, folks. Jesus said, I'll build my church. And a large number who believed turned to the Lord. And so here's the remarkable thing. 
Once again, God is seated on the throne. He is sovereign. His ways are different than ours, Isaiah 55. And he takes persecution, the death of one of his servants, Stephen. The church is scattered from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria. And what happens? Individuals land north in Syria, a place called Antioch. They're preaching the gospel to who? To Hellenists. If you're taking notes this morning, mark that down, circle that in your Bible. Why? That's transition. What happened is the gospel started in Jerusalem to Jews, went to Samaria, God-fearing people, went to Cush. Uh, if you remember, the Ethiopian eunuch comes from uh, southern Egypt. Then we heard about Cornelius, who's a God-fearer at Caesarea. But this is the first time in the book of Acts, 13 chapters, that we see the gospel penetrating polytheists, Hellenists, pagans, People who had no understanding whatsoever of the gospel as recorded in the Old Testament. And so it's a remarkable thing. Now the pagans, the polytheists, the folks who've never heard uh, the scriptures of the Old Testament are embracing the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church is born in a Hellenistic city. And so if you have your connect card, I want to encourage you. Here's the blessing this morning. Because scripture establishes Antioch as an exemplary church that Christ built, Westwind should learn from her example. Now here's the thing I want to encourage this morning, folks. 2,000 years ago, the church in Antioch was a unique church, right? They had a unique context, a unique setting, a unique culture. Again, a lot of paganism, a lot of polytheism. So we're not trying to emulate everything they do, but boy, oh boy, can we learn a ton from what God built at Antioch and apply that to our lives today. So let's look at five exemplary things about this church. Number one, Christ is building a welcoming community. And I really love this part of uh, the passage, it, it sometimes is overlooked. But look at verse 1 again. In the church that was Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. And notice the names. Luke is very detailed. He gives details for a reason. And so notice who's there. Barnabas. Simeon, who was called Niger. Lucius, the Cyrenian. Manaean, the close friend of Herod the Tetrarch. And Saul. What's remarkable about those five leaders is the cultural diversity, the ethnic uniqueness, and they came from different parts of the world. So let me unpack some of the details. We've heard of Barnabas before, right? Chapter 4, Barnabas is the son of encouragement. He sells land, takes the money, gives it to the apostles. Saul's being, uh, you know, distanced from the church. What does Barnabas do? He puts his arm around and says, Saul, hey, let's welcome him, church, into the fold. Barnabas was a key leader. But what's really cool about Barnabas is he's multicultural. He's both Jew and Hellenist. He had a Greek growing up, and he knew both worlds. And then we hear about an individual, Simeon's his name. He's from Africa for sure. Why? His nickname is Niger. He's a black man. Lucius. Lucius comes from Cyrene in North Africa. It's called modern-day Libya. And we know this for sure in the ancient world. He was an Arab. Think about the, the uniqueness of this church. And then this one is remarkable. Menaean. 
we get an idea for sure that he was either an intimate friend or an adopted foster brother of who? Herod Antipas. You know who Herod Antipas is? He had John the Baptist beheaded. And here's a guy from the Herod dynasty, and we've been talking about them. He's coming to faith in Christ, and now he's a leader in the church in Antioch. And then finally, Saul, the great persecutor of the church. And so what is remarkable about this church is it's, it's a picture of Genesis 12. God says, through the seed of Abraham, all nations on earth will be blessed. And what is happening in Antioch, a very pagan, polytheist, Hellenistic city, they're welcoming people from everywhere. Different ethnicities, different languages, from Judaism, from Africa, from different places, and the church is becoming what God always dreamed. You know, one of the most remarkable things that you'll learn from missiologists today is when you look at world religions, for the most part, world religions are in the area where they were established. For instance, Islam, 90%, 96% of Muslims are basically around the Middle East. They're centrally located. They're not scattered around the world like the church. Hinduism, the same thing. They're dominantly positioned in India in that part of the world. Why? That's where it was founded. You know what's beautiful and radical about Christianity? It's just the opposite. It's a global faith. It's a faith for all peoples. It's a welcoming faith. There's neither Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. We're all one in Christ. We're the body of Christ. And so it's wonderful when you travel sometimes and you're in a different church in a different country. You have the gospel. You have Jesus Christ. You have brothers and sisters in Christ. One of the most remarkable experiences Ellen and I had was pastoring in Chicago in the North Shore at a place called Skokie. Picture this, two services on Sunday morning, 300 people, average attendance, and we had 35 ethnicities on Sunday morning. Can you imagine, folks, 35 ethnicities in a small church in Skokie, Illinois. They came from all around the world. I'll never forget my first men's meeting. We're hanging out. There's about 30 or so men at uh, some friends home. And I was in a group of four getting to know some guys. And there was a fellow named Bader from Morocco. There was George from Lebanon. There was Maxwell from East Africa. And there was Keith from Buffalo, New York. Talk about the odd man out. I was a minority in that church, but it was so beautiful because it's a picture of the body of Christ. Christianity is absolutely distinct from every world religion. Why? It's a gospel for all people. All the boundaries and barriers get broken down. Think about this Menaean guy. He comes from upper class in the Herod dynasty. He was probably affluent as could be. And here he is, part of the leadership of the church. We have an Arab from modern-day Libya. We have an African from Africa. We got a multicultural Barnabas, and then we got the most religious of religious, Saul, Paul, the Pharisee of Pharisees, making up the body of Christ. Friends, I don't know about you, but that jazzes me. That is the gospel. 
That is Genesis chapter 12. That through Abraham's seed, Jesus Christ, all nations on the earth will be blessed. So let's think more close to home. Welcoming. One of the things that I hear from guests constantly at Westwind Church is this is a welcoming community. And on behalf of our elders and leadership, our staff, I want to say thank you, Westwind. It's wonderful to hear that. That people feel warm and greeted and encouraged. Fun story, a few weeks ago, we had a gal visiting our church and, you know, she likes coffee like I do. But she left her coffee at home, wasn't sure you could do coffee at a church like this. First time here. So she comes in, guess what she saw out front? Not only a coffee bar, but people offering coffee. So she inquired, oh, wow, could I have a cup? Yeah. Can you take it into the sanctuary? Yes. She said, this place is so cool. <laughs> no, I'm serious, guys. It's simple things like that where our, our, our first impression ministry out on the street, welcoming cars, making sure they're parked, at the door, greeting, shaking a hand with a smile, sometimes offering prayer, knowing that there's some needs. There's so many ways to bless people as we open our doors to this community. I had a gentleman this morning. He just kind of indicated to me, hey, you got a minute? He says, Pastor Keith, do you think I can go out to the apartment complexes and just knock on doors and invite people to come to church? How would you respond to that? Yeah, you have to do it sensitively. You have to do it wisely. Sometimes, you know, it looks like solicitation, so you've got to get permission. But what a heart to welcome the community into our fellowship. That's what the Chosen's all about. Folks, we just want to provide environments. Do you know what's over to my right over here? Have you noticed that net? Anybody know what that is? Thanks, Brett. Did you get your paddle yet? You got to get a paddle. Counting on you, buddy. Here's the deal, folks. One of the first things we thought to do, because pickleball's like this weird craze right now. Do you realize that? Like everybody plays pickleball. Well, not everybody. Brett doesn't play yet. <laughs> We're working on him. No, but I'm telling you, there's, there's like this craze going on. So we had an intern a couple summers ago, and I started playing with Kevin. I'm like, I like this. And every now and then I won a game. I'm like, I really like that. And we started playing. Some guys would show up next to you. know, we thought, you know what? We brought in this regional guy who does pickleball, and he mapped it out with his wife, taped it up, loaned us a net. We played a couple times this week. We've been playing in the weeks past. We're going to start a pickleball ministry. Why? Because it's cool, for one. Two, to welcome our community. Just open our doors. Use this facility for the kingdom and glory of God. And so, folks, whether it's the chosen, whether it's pickleball, whatever we can do, yes to the community. Yes, let's be welcoming. Antioch was super welcoming. It's a gospel for all peoples. You with me? All right, who wants to play today? Pickleball. All right, number two. Ready? Let's keep going. Christ is building a worshiping community. And this is fun, right from the passage. Look at verse 2. As they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work I have called them to. It's a beautiful phrase, ministering to the Lord. It's extracted from Old Testament worship. 
And basically what's happening with these five leaders, not limited to them, but at least them, they became worship leaders in the early church. They were acting in the role of the high priestly role. Remember the Levites? God chose one of the 12 tribes to represent God before the people. They became conduits. That's what these guys are. They're worship leaders. But notice this. Their roles and practices were very specific as worship leaders. So let me highlight at least a few. Number one. Worship through the word. Look at verse one again. In the church that was at Antioch, there were prophets and who? Teachers. Now, I can't go into the depth of prophets and teachers, but I want to show you something from Ephesians 2, 19 through 23. The Bible says that the foundation of the teaching of the church came through the apostles and the prophets. So when you think about these prophets and teachers in Antioch, they're laying the foundation for what? The gospel. Saul of Tarsus was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He kept the law of Judaism. He says in his testimony he was blameless. He knew this book. He studied under a guy named Gamaliel, one of the leading rabbis of the day. He gets converted. He comes to faith in Christ. And guess what? Begins teaching the church. Wrote a lot of letters. And we have them today. And they're endearing. Now, you may be wondering, how could a church plant like Antioch, so diverse in their ethnicity and culture and background, have these prophets and teachers? Where did all that come from? Well, let me show you something, because I found this pretty remarkable. If you can flip back to Acts chapter 11, verses 25 through 26, I want, want you to see this. It says, then he, Barnabas, went to Tarsus to search for who? Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to where? Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught large numbers. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Think through what's happening here. Persecution planted the church. God did a great work. A large number of diverse people, Hellenism, pagans, polytheists believe. Who do they deploy? They deploy two of their best. Saul and Barnabas go up there for one solid year and they're teaching and preaching the word of God. You know what's cool about Antioch? They were hungry. And they were eating the word. This is 2 Timothy 2, 15. Study and to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who need, needs not to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. This is 2 Timothy 3, 16. All scripture is God-breathed. It's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Why? The man and woman might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is 2 Timothy 4. Preach the word in season and out. For one solid year, two men, Saul and Barnabas, laid the foundation for truth at the church of Antioch. And now what? Multiplication. There's five teachers. There's five prophets leading the way for the foundational truth of the church. That's cool stuff. So here's the encouragement, folks. Let's disciple each other. Let's teach each other. Life group leaders, please hear me. Make sure this book is open. Let's talk about God's word, not what we think it means, but what it means, and then talk about application, living these truths out. People of the book, that's what God is calling us to be. One of the great distinctives of West Wind Church from its history is to take the Bible, what you see is what you get, and go book by book. 
We do our best. We're not perfect. We study hard to give you what God gives us. But folks, going book by book, chapter by chapter, paragraph by paragraph, is God-honoring, and it accomplishes teaching in the church. Now, secondly, practice number two, notice, worship through fasting and prayer. And again, I'm just highlighting what is being highlighted here at Antioch. There's so much more you could say about worship, but we're going to stick to the text. Look at verses 2 and 3. As they were ministering to the Lord, and notice, and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work I have called them to. Notice this. Then after they had fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them off. Pastor Jason already reminded us that one of our core values is relentless prayer. We had a whole talk on that a few weeks ago to be a praying church. And I want to say thank you to the elders and thank you to Westwind for leaning in. We're going to reestablish our practice of having elders uh, after the service on both sides. If you have something to share, a praise, a prayer request, we want to be here for you. We want to fulfill James 5. We want to, at times when there's a unique and urgent need, come, anoint you with oil, bless you, pray for you, and, and make Westwind a house of prayer. And that's just a starting point, folks. There's so much more we could say about that. But what about fasting? Why does fasting come into play periodically throughout the Bible? I think the one primary reason is urgency. It seems like fasting and urgency, taking hold of heaven, Lord, we are desperate for you, goes along with fasting. Why do I say that? Two examples. Esther, genocide, if you know the book. The whole nation of Israel is going to be annihilated in the the Persian province, which was enormous in the ancient world. Esther calls her people to a three-day fast. Lord, we're desperate. Please hear our prayer. And God, of course, rescued Jesus. Before he enters his public ministry, what does he do? He fasts and he prays. Why? There is an urgency. The kingdom of heaven is in your midst. And he fasts before he enters public ministry. We've asked you over the past few years to periodically fast. Why? Probably the biggest issue we've faced in recent days has been this property. The generosity needed, the manpower needed, the faith needed to move forward. And some of you said yes to fasting. Many said yes to prayer. And we thank you for that. But folks, that's the foundational practices of worship in the early church. Worship through the word, worship through prayer, worship through fasting. Three, example number three, Christ is building his church through a responsive community. This is really beautiful. Look at verses two and three. As they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, we have to pause there for a minute because the average Bible student has to ask the question, how does that happen? How does the Holy Spirit speak? Well, can I make a few suggestions? Number one, it could be through the prophets and teachers. Okay? That's a possibility. We're not sure. The text doesn't say. The other thing is, when you hear his voice, Scripture says in Hebrews, don't harden your heart. In other words, he speaks directly to you. That there is just a real sense that that is a word from God or an impression on your heart that I should move forward with. So the Holy Spirit does speak. And notice what he said. Set apart for me, 
Barnabas and Saul for the work I have called them to. Then after they had fasted, prayed, laid hands on them, they sent them off. Can we talk just for a moment about God's heart for missions? Our God is a missionary God, right? You know that. Think through what's going on here. This is such a beautiful picture of how Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is involved in kingdom work. Think about God the Father. John 3.16, so famous. I still see it up at, you know, games in the end zone. John 3.16, way to go. For God so loved the world, what did he do? He gave, what did he give? He gave his best. That whoever believes in him, Jesus won't perish, but have everlasting life. God gave his son, the second person of the Trinity, to die on your behalf and mine. Then Jesus comes and he summarized his ministry, Luke 19.10. The Son of Man came to seek and to save lost people. I was lost at age 19. He sought after me, the hound of heaven. I came to faith in Christ. Man, I'm so thankful a lot of years later, over four decades in Christ because he sought me. But then think about this first because it's, it's really uh, neglected as to the Spirit's work and mission. But I want you to see something. Notice the phrase, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me two guys. In other words, the Spirit of God is missional. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit want to see this, this beautiful picture of all nations being blessed. This is Revelation 5, 9. There's a worship scene in heaven, if you're familiar. And the worship's coming from every ethnic group, every tongue group, every people group, and they're worshiping our great God and Savior. The Holy Spirit says, I need two guys to be deployed to make sure the kingdom of God continues to come. We had... Uh, a special uh, week, as I mentioned already, with Thanksgiving, but we got together with some old friends, one couple from our previous church, uh, Robin and Jerry, and if you're watching, God bless you guys. We had so much fun, but they're still in our former church and uh, serving so faithfully, but they join us weekly online, and they count us a part of our fellowship, and it's so neat to know there's other people who aren't here physically that are with us weekly. But when we were going through the Who's Your Neighbor, Who's Your One series, you remember that? The Spirit spoke to Robin and Jerry, and they thought, you know, we've been in our neighborhood 20 years, and we really haven't gotten to know too many people. 20 years. They were just honest about it. They started walking. They started praying. They started communicating and engaging. Fast forward, they did a beautiful thing called Acts of Friendship, where God's people are deployed into the community to come alongside people in need. And not only were they deployed as a church, they rallied the rest of their neighbors to bless a senior man who had unique needs. Why do I tell you that story? Well, it's kingdom living. But the Spirit spoke. There was a conviction after 20 years, we should be knowing our neighbors. We should be engaging them for the kingdom and glory of God. And they finally acted. Can I show you a verse from, from Hebrews? It's on the screen. And it's a beautiful verse. But boy, oh boy, it shows what can happen to our heart, to my heart. Hebrews 3, 7 says, Therefore, 
As the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, and really the if doesn't have to be conditional, it could be when you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. You know what the sad thing is? I think there are many, many times where the Spirit of God speaks, either through people, through the word, through our conscience, or just literally saying, set apart from me. Just, just knowing that's from the Spirit, what happens to us? Our hearts get hardened. We shrink back. We resist the work of the Spirit. And there is an appeal in Scripture to be responsive to the Spirit's voice, to say yes when he's calling you out by faith, to be generous with your time, treasure, talent, and touch. It's a beautiful way to do life. And so, number four... Christ is building, and I love this, a sending community. A sending community. Look at verses 4 and 5. Being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they came down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus, arriving in Salamis. They proclaimed God's message in the Jewish synagogues. Let me show you a map of the ancient world, because I'd like to give you perspective. Last time I spoke, we took you to Caesarea, on the coast, just north of Joppa, about 45 minutes. Now, Antioch is north of Caesarea. We are in modern-day Syria. The island of Cyprus is to the west. By the way, Cyprus High Macaria is one of the most blessed places on planet Earth. It's a beautiful place. It was uh, a place that had a Jewish presence, synagogues. We see that there. But that's where they were deployed as now the gospel starts to move. Which way? West. And so what should we learn here? The church being ascending church. A few things that are really crucial. Number one, the previous base 10, 12 years prior was in Jerusalem. And who was the point guy? It was Peter. You know what the new base for the church is going to be from Acts 13 through 28? Antioch becomes the new base. It becomes the sending place. And the gospel advances all the way to Rome, potentially to Spain, from Antioch. When the missionaries come back, who have been deployed, they come back to Antioch and they give a report of God's great work. Hugely, hugely important. So the question we have to ask is, how did the church at Antioch, and again, they're, they're an infant church. They've only been around for about a year. They're well taught. They're praying and fasting. They had depth. How did they respond? The Spirit says, give me two guys, and not just any guys. Give me Saul and Barnabas, two key core leaders, great resources. Do you think it was hard for Antioch to, to release these folks? I think it could be very hard to give your best but it seems to me from the text, there was great joy in responding to the Spirit. And they deployed these two men. And as you'll see in the weeks coming, boy, they went off and great kingdom work took place. We were uh, hoping to have the Devers family here today, and they're not feeling well. So I talked to Matt this morning, and hopefully we'll see them in uh, in weeks to come. But let me show you the picture of this beautiful family. Um, Matt and uh, Trista and Matthias and Ada. Yes, I got it right. 
a beautiful family. They had to come home from Malaysia. They've been home for about a year and nine months since COVID hit. The good news today, as you think about them and you pray, number one, they got their visas. That was a prayer request. Number two, they booked their flights. Lord willing, number three, they'll be redeployed to Malaysia with a new ministry, reaching and teaching by the end of the year. So would you please keep this dear family in prayer? It's a lot happening globally, folks. This isn't easy stuff. And so we want to stand with them as part of the sending church. We are going to recommission them, but hopefully you'll see them in a few weeks. And then finally, Christ is building a gospel-sharing community. And so the final passage here, I want you to look at Acts 13, 6 through 12. There's a lot going on, and I chose not to deal with the magician, the sorcerer, the blindness. We can hit that another topic or have coffee together, but track with me here, and we'll stay focused on, I think, what the primary uh, part of the text is suggesting. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came across a sorcerer, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul, desired to hear God's message. But Elimus, the sorcerer, this is the meaning of his name, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Then Saul, also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, stared straight at the sorcerer and said, You son of the devil, full of all deceit and fraud, enemy of righteousness, won't you ever start perverting the straight path of the Lord? Now look! The Lord's hand is against you. You're going to be blind and will not see the sun for a time. Suddenly a mist and darkness fell on him. He went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul, seeing what happened, notice this, believed and was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Two things I want to highlight. Number one, history and archaeology is on our side. Let me show you a few uh, photos Archaeologists believe they have found uh, remnants that highlight Sergius Paulus, the proconsul, on the island of Cyprus. Why do I bring that up? Because facts are your friends. History stands with the scriptures. Archaeology, time and time again, validates the truth of the text. And so there's, again, more evidence that, yes, we can stand on the word of God. But the thing I want to close with this morning is this. Notice the phrase that this uh, man named Sergius Paulus summoned Barnabas and Saul, and notice the phrase, and desired to hear God's message. I have a deep conviction this morning, a deep, deep conviction. This book is true. It transforms people's lives. That's what Romans 1 says. The gospel's the power of God unto salvation. There are people right now in your sphere of influence and mine who are ready, who are open, who are willing to receive the truth of the gospel. All we have to do is bring it to them. We're going to see in Acts 16, open doors and open hearts. God opens people's hearts, folks. And the question we have to ask is, are we looking for those divine appointments? Let me tell you one mini story. So Ellen and I, a few weeks ago, we were in a hotel up in Minnesota just visiting with our kids, and we just had one night there. It was early in the morning, we were working on some stuff, and we just had prayer right before breakfast. Typical, bow your head, thank the Lord, commit our day, just prayer together. Gentleman comes over, African-American man, big, tall guy, says, hey, can we talk? Sure. Sits down, 
Fast forward, and I'm not exaggerating, well over an hour later, had the privilege to share the gospel with him. You know what sparked his interest? One thing, we were praying. He says, it just looks like something unique is going on here. You're, you're praying together as a couple. Tell us, and his, his girlfriend was there, tell us about this thing that you have. And we had the privilege to share the gospel with him. That's what's going on here. Sergius Paulus, his heart was open. He was eager to hear, hear the word of God. And he created the invitation for Barnabas and Saul to come and tell him. So here's the question. If someone comes, knocks on the door, hey, tell me, are you ready? Are you ready to share the good news? The message of the hope that we have through Jesus Christ. Would you agree with me that the Antioch Church is a remarkable church? We just want to learn from them. But some of the things that's true of the Antioch Church, I can absolutely say with, with sincerity this morning, is true of Westwind. So we celebrate that Westwind Church. We celebrate the body of Christ. We celebrate your generosity, your time, treasure, talent, and touch, your commitment to seeing this faith family become Antiochian. Being the church is to be the body of Christ. He promised he would build his church, and yet we have the privilege to partner with him. Pray with me, please. Father, Thanksgiving week, my goodness, there's so many things to be thankful for. But more than anything, Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, today, we thank you for seeking and saving lost people like us. Father, we thank you for being a missionary God, for wanting to bless all people on earth through Christ. Jesus, we thank you for seeking and saving lost people and Holy Spirit for calling out and empowering us and setting up divine appointments for opening our hearts and others' hearts. And so we're praying today, Father, as we move into this Christmas season and we start a new series next week, Give This Christmas Away. Lord, Make us generous like yourself. Father, you gave, you gave your best. So there's so many opportunities, Father. We cry out to you as your spirit speaks. We would listen. We would be responsive. We want to see your kingdom come. We want to see your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And to that end, we pray as Westwind Church. In Jesus' name, amen.